Welcome to this week's episode of Getting on the Green. This week we have Jack Hayes joining us from Georgia. He is the director and managing member of NAIG2 Commercial Real Estate and is an expert in the real estate world. He is going to teach us a little bit about leasing and his top five essentials within a lease. We've got a lot to cover today, so let's get right into it. So thank you very much, Jack, for being with us today. We're thrilled to uh, speak with you, sit down and learn from you. Uh, So uh, let's get going. Yeah, thanks for having me, Craig. Uh, Happy to be a guest today. All right, so I just gave a brief bio about yourself. Tell us a little bit more uh, about how you got to where you are today and where you are today. Yeah, so I graduated from the University of Georgia uh, with a degree in land planning and landscape architecture, and I got into sort of land entitlements in South Florida, uh, and then ultimately into commercial real estate thereafter. And over the last 12 years, I have really focused on office and large industrial space throughout uh, West Georgia and East Alabama region. All right. So that definitely gives you a a large amount of experience in different arrays of the commercial real estate space. So today's topic is going to be the top five need to know um, issues in a commercial lease. So let's get right into it. The number one thing you need to know when getting into a commercial lease, according to the infamous Jack Hayes, uh, is what type of lease? So describe what the different types of leases there are and, you know, maybe a story or which one is uh, best for a given situation. Yeah. So I always try to tell people is you need to understand the type of lease uh, when you're dealing with commercial leases, where it's office, retail, you name it, because really you're looking at apples, oranges, and bananas. But the top three I always try to tell people there are, is a gross and or full service lease where the lease is pretty much inclusive, excuse me, the rent amount is inclusive of everything in that. Uh, The second type would be a net lease or single lease, single net, double net, triple net, but focus on the the net portion, which means you pay your rental rate plus the taxes, plus the insurance, and plus a CAM or community area maintenance fee. And so in order to look at all of these, you need to be able to compare them again apples to apples when you're comparing apples, oranges, and bananas. Uh, the third item, which is sort of a uh, in-between of the net lease and the gross lease, would be a modified gross or a modified net lease, whereby rent would be fixed, and then the tenant would be responsible for increases in taxes or increases in the camp or the increases in the insurance after a base first year. So you have to know your type of lease in order to compare everything apples to apples so you actually understand what you're out-of-pocket rent is either for yourself as a tenant or as a broker representing a tenant. Yeah, so one one interesting thing that, that you'll see is, let's say, let's just take a, an office building, for instance, that has a bunch of different tenants and potentially different owners within it, um, and that brings into the situation different brokerage, um, I guess, representation. So you'll see, let's say, for instance, a $32 per square foot modified gross and then you'll see maybe a $28 uh, triple net. And you'll say, well, you know, $28, that sounds a lot better than, you know, the 30-something, whatever I, I said before. Um, let's go with that unit. But, you know, is that necessarily, you know, the right path to take? Absolutely. So we, we see that all the time, especially with tenants that, if you think about it, most companies, they're not in, say, 50 leases across the country, right? They're in a 
single location to focus on that one point of operation. And so when they do a market survey, which is what you're referring to, Craig, is they have usually an administrator in their office go on the internet, LoopNet, CoStar, Craigsy, you name it, and they come up with a list of properties, and the, uh, they show them a picture, they show them the price. But the price, you have to look at the look at the, uh, the wording of the verbiage after that per square foot rate. So to your point, a triple net would be NNN. That means the rate plus the NNN. If it says modified gross, is the rate plus a base year increase. And so it's understanding those types of leases so you can compare them. Those 28 triple net may be an additional $6 of triple net. And so in fact, the rate's $34 a foot. So when you're comparing it to the $32 a foot space, the $32 modified gross is actually the better deal. Okay, so is that, like whose responsibility is that um, for let's say the tenant to figure out you know, what the cams are, this or that, or is there a way to verify that? Or is it basically whatever the owner says, that's the cams and that's what you have to pay, uh, for instance, in a triple net lease? So buyer beware, right? It's incumbent upon the tenant to ask these questions. And if you're working with a broker, it's your broker's responsibility to ask these questions for you. Prior to signing a lease, you should absolutely know what is included in the lease. And my number two item for tenants to consider is just this. Understand what's in the CAM, what's in the uh, triple net, because within the CAM, the community area maintenance fee, I'll use that as an example, you'd have grounds maintenance, which is your landscaping irrigation. You'd have exterior uh, parking lot lighting. you have trash pickup. you have oftentimes water included. If it's a full service lease, your power may be included. But when you're looking at those, you need to ask for a breakdown from the landlord to see exactly what is included in those. So for example, if a tenant doesn't do a good job or the broker doesn't do a good job talking with the landlord and asking for a breakdown, they may include things like property management fees. Your effectively your CAM includes the property management fee. It might include what we call capital improvement. A capital improvement is traditionally an item that a landlord is responsible for maintaining, like the roof, the foundation, the exterior walls, sometimes plate glass windows. Uh, your HVAC is a, is a big one, but you need to understand what's included in cap, the CAM, and most importantly, I always try to tell people is, you also have the ability to add a cap, an annual cap of increase. So you can limit the increase to the CAM to what we call controllable expenses, and often I try to get a 3% cap, if not 5% uh, on, on the high end, but a landlord can control how much money they spend on the grounds and landscaping, but they can't control the property tax, they can't control the insurance. So if you sign the lease and you sign the lease to the landlord who pays part of that CAM includes his management company fees, and if he's charging a 3% property management fee, and he all of a sudden decides to charge his tenants, or charge a 10% property management fee, that cost would be passed on to you as the tenant unless you had a, a cap to these CAM charges. Okay, so I was gonna ask you, why would CAMs increase? Um, you know, why would a, why would a cap even be necessary? But I mean, giving a good example is that is if the uh, management fees increased, then obviously the landlord doesn't necessarily want to have to pay for that. He's going to pass that along to his tenants. Um, sure. The big one that we see often, Craig, for example, would be as simple as um, uh, landscape improvements. So a landlord may decide to redo the landscape of a property, and if landscape is included, there's not a cap, and they decide to do a hundred thousand dollar improvement. Through their own landscaping, they can pass that cost back on to a tenant 
as part of their CAM charges. So let me let me ask you about um, in the actual contract, um, you you'll have your your base rent, and then you'll have your pass throughs or your CAMs. So when that's written in there, it'll it'll say something along the lines of let's just give a, a random number of five dollars per square foot of the pass throughs or the CAMs. So what you're saying is the landlord can then go back and adjust that $5, even though it's written in the contract, he can all of a sudden arbitrarily charge you $7 a square foot, $10 a square foot? It's not arbitrary because it, and again, you have to look at the language of the lease because everyone's unique, right? Some leases may not call out that $5 per square foot additional cam charge. They just say that you're responsible for the cam charge, mm. period, the end, which are subject to adjustment on an annual basis. Well, subject to an annual basis, subject to what? To a 20% increase? To a 100% increase? If you don't cap it, you're liable for the increase should that instance happen. Now, in the real world, landlords want to keep good tenants happy, and it's, it's not a common occurrence, but I have seen the property management portion increase, whereby the tenant's overall cam did uh, increase by, say, 15%, wow. which came as quite a shock. Because nobody wants to write a uh, check at the end of end of the year because the landlord did some arbitrary increases uh, to the cam. And so uh, is the landlord required to give a breakdown of these cam charges or can they just say this is what it is, you know, take it or leave it, or do they have to give that like itemized list of those cam charges? So great question, and my answer when I say often is it depends, right? What does your lease say? What does the contract say? So I always advise my clients you want to have the ability to audit and review the CAM charges every year. Um, most of the leases that I write, uh, the, the landlord has to provide evidence thereof, okay, uh, both on this year and a projected budget for the following year. But we have audit, audit rights. Usually we like to get those. We like to get the numbers in within a 30 to 60 day period at the end of the year for audit and review. Um, and just to protect ourselves and our clients. So in a situation where, let's say I'm the landlord, and let's say my final combined number is $20. Let's say I'm asking 15 on the base rent and $5 pass through. Couldn't, if, if I can't prove that $5, couldn't I just say, okay, instead of 15 and five, I'll do 19 and one or something along those lines? So far, we have seen two of the items on the list of need-to-know commercial lease items with Jack Hayes. The first was the type of lease you're dealing with. The second is what's included in the lease. The third item is who's responsible for what. So, so hopefully you can talk to us more about that, Jack. What, what do you mean by who's responsible? Yeah, so all commercial leases are 
one in a commercial lease, particularly when it comes to uh, repairs and improvements to the property. Uh, some examples that we always say is it's commonplace for landlords to be 100% responsible for the roof, uh, the exterior walls, and the foundation of the property, as well as the utility services into the building. But often, landlords will shift responsibility for one of the big ticket items, heating and air, 100% back onto a tenant. And if you're a smaller business, uh, burning the cost of a $5,000 air conditioned replacement um, would be something that would be quite impactful to you. So often what we've talked to our clients about is if you're on landlord side, you want to shift responsibility to the tenant. If you're on tenant side, you want to shift responsibility back to the landlord. Now a landlord may say, look, you're going to be using the system. We need for you to have some sort of responsibility and accountability. And then under those situations, we say, look, there's got to be some common ground. And the example we would have is a uh, annual not to exceed cost, for example, of $2,500 and then a single occurrence of, say, $500. Thereby, the tenant is responsible for maintaining the unit, keeping it in good uh, workmanship order. And if there's a repair that's needed, they call the heating and air company rather than a landlord being engaged uh, on an ongoing uh, process day-to-day, month-to-month, if you will. So isn't that kind of determined based on the type of the lease, though? Uh, so, for instance, with, a let's say, a, a all-inclusive, like, gross lease, uh, wouldn't that be included? Like, your, your responsibility is kind of out of the picture as long as you pay this um, all-in fee um, versus the triple net where you may be uh, responsible for specific things? It all depends, right? So under your examples you gave, a full service lease, most likely it would be included. But again, the lease will govern, so whatever it says. In a gross lease, you need to look at that because that's not always the situation. In a what we call a absolute net lease, and that under that situation, the tenant's responsible for taxes, insurance, CAM, all repairs to the property, then it would be on the tenant 100%. Um, often on a triple net lease, again, you would need to look at that. So at the end of the day, you, you need to look at the lease and see what it says because that will govern over anything else. But obviously, there are uh, different types of leases. Things are customary. So is this the type of um, thing that you would go item by item within a building? For instance, walls are my responsibility. Air conditioning is your responsibility. Lights are my responsibility. Or is this just an overall, like, yeah, everything internal is yours, everything external is mine? Sure. So every commercial lease is different. Most often um, within a uh, provision within the lease document, it'll break it out by different items, not as specific as heating and air, plumbing, lighting, but it may be under a paragraph called mechanical systems, if you will. Um, also underneath that maintenance and repair provision with the lease, they'll talk about, say, landlord responsibilities typically, and in that it would say, for example, roof, exterior walls, and foundation, that sort of thing. Okay, so uh, to transition into the fourth item on our list, uh, what type of guarantees or security does either side have when it comes to a lease? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's several different types. One of the most uh, common that you see is a uh, first month's rent uh, or and a security deposit equal to the first month's rent, I should say. 
and often you'll see things like where landlords say, hey, I want a uh, personal guarantee. Uh, from, a, from a tenant's perspective, you want to provide as least amount of guarantee as you have to, and from a landlord's perspective, you want as much as you can get. Um, often what we see, uh, sometimes if you're a uh, small credit tenant, you can post a first month security uh, deposit, and then maybe after a year's worth of uh, performance under the lease, least you can ask for that to be returned back to you. Um, when it comes to like uh, companies and corporations, they don't like to have their capital tied up into a security deposit in their situation. If you're a uh, 300,000 square foot uh, warehouse lease and your, renal, your monthly rent is $50,000, you don't need a post $50,000 security deposit to be sitting uh, there on deposit with the, with the landlord. And so under those situations, what often our, our corporate clients do is post uh, three years trailing financials to show the overall, um, I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say, creditworthiness of their particular tenant in lieu of posting a security deposit. But there's several different things that uh, tenants can do and landlords to provide security. So this is a way to protect yourself or to guarantee um, that a certain action is going to be taken? Sure. So it's really from a landlord's protection. It's, it's to ensure that the tenant's going to do what they say they're going to do. Uh, a good example I might give you is we just did a, a 10-year medical lease. It's a triple net lease, and it was a, uh, a corporate client. And um, the landlord said, hey, well, we're having to do $100,000 worth of tenant improvements to the property, and what assurance do we have that you're going to perform under the lease? The first thing the landlord asked for was a, a personal guarantee from an owner of the company, which the owner was unwilling to provide. Then the second fallback was post two months worth of security deposit, and we'll release one month after a year, which was then denied by the, the tenant as well. And the common ground we ended up coming to was very simply posting three years worth of trailing financials and a guarantee, uh, well, the guarantee was essentially the signature of an officer of the company, of the corporation, and that satisfied the landlord and the tenant was happy to provide that in lieu of coming out of pocket a one or two month security deposit. So would that um, basically bring up some sort of red flags if a tenant either A, doesn't want to take a personal guarantee, B, they won't take a personal guarantee if the uh, landlord says it's you know the personal guarantee or we'll find somebody else? Uh, does that does that bring up red flags, or is that a fairly common thing? It's a common thing. I wouldn't say necessarily a red flag. If it's a smaller lease and somebody's not willing to post a first month security deposit, you're going to ask questions like, well, what is your tenant history? And you do your due diligence as far as calling the landlords and their uh, credit providers and vendors to see how they perform. On a big lease like the one I just talked about, where it's a corporate uh, lease and it's a long-term deal, it's sort of... The landlord wants that tenant because it brings value to the property. Mm -hmm. And so the landlord will do their due diligence to make their best estimations as whether or not the tenant can perform their lease and how it relates back to the value of the property. Because putting a, a 10-year lease that's creating a million dollars worth of net revenue over a 10-year period brings substantial value to that landlord who could then maybe apply as low as a 55 to 6.5 cap rate on that net cash flow. So there's a give and take. So can you explain the, uh, the three-month trailing a little bit more? How does that provide um, anything basically other not, than... Not three months. Oh, I'm sorry? It's three years. 
Oh, three. I'm sorry. Three, three years. Yeah, I'm sorry. Three years. Um, how does that provide anything other than basically a warm feeling inside? How is that any sort of security other than, okay, in the past you've had these financials, but, you know, how, how is that, you know, whereas when you're holding on to somebody's money, you know, that's, I mean, you're holding their money. Uh, so, so can you explain a little bit more on what that proves or what that shows or what that it, your intention is for those? Well, there's no absolutes in life. Mm -hmm. And that goes and applies to guarantees as well. And so when you're, uh, whether you're a landlord, particularly we're talking about landlord side here, you have to do your best efforts to evaluate the tenant's credit risk related to the amount of money that you're going to put in deal, the amount of risk as a landlord that you're willing to take. You can obviously do a deeper dive. You can pull Moody's reports and some, some larger companies and those sorts of things. But in most cases, they would be committing a great deal of fraud to try to produce three years' worth of financial statements in order to just avoid a one-month security <laughs> deposit. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, so as of now, we've heard that uh, step one is understand the type of lease. Step two is understand what's included in the lease. Item number three is who is responsible for what, and number four is the type of security um, in a lease. So let's move on to the fifth and final item on the five things to know in a commercial lease with Jack Hayes, and that is omitted items. What does that mean? Why would something be omitted from a lease? Okay, so I always try to tell people we're all in the age of uh, the internet and Google, we're all experts just with the, at the tip of our finger, uh, fingers by typing in search terms like commercial lease, things to know, and those sorts of things. But if you're not an active participant in negotiating commercial leases on a day-to-day -day basis, then you're not going to do as good of a job. And so I can go to the doctor and Google how to perform knee surgery and try to do it for myself at the house, but I'm not going to do a very good job. It's probably not very smart. And so we always tell people is you can negotiate the items that are within a lease that you see, but the things that get pe people and tenants the most are using a landlord's lease form and not knowing what should be included or what has been omitted from a lease. And some examples I, I will give you are tenants don't know always to ask for lease incentives. Uh, early access to do data, connect, uh, data connectivity, free rent. If you're signing a five-year lease, you can negotiate up to three months, potentially, of free base rent, going back to that value that your tenancy creates for a landlord. Don't be afraid to ask for things. Also, talk about tenant-proven dollars. If you're coming in and signing a long-term lease, most landlords are willing to renovate and provide you an allowance to do renovations and improvements to the property in order to induce you to execute this lease. But again, if you don't know to ask these things, you don't know they've included. So other things that we talk about are renewal options. Most landlords want to get you into, so let's say, a three to five year lease and not provide a renewal option. And the reason being is once you're in the space, the cost to pick up and relocate can be substantial to a business. Therefore, a landlord, but not providing a renewal option, uh, has all the cards when it comes to negotiation of that extension renewable lease. And so you could have a rental increase of 25 to 50%, which would be a substantial impact to a tenant. Now, a couple other things we talk about, if you're in a multi-tenant uh, building situation, and let's say you're opening an insurance office, well, you don't want the landlord to uh, lease the adjacent space or another space in the building to another uh, insurance agent, a competitor. But if you don't put an exclusive use clause within the lease, 
then that can happen. Um, also, we talked about what we call rights of first refusal or rights of first offer. Um, if you're a tenant, you occupy a substantial amount of space in a property, if the landlord sells the property, maybe you would like to have the opportunity to purchase the property before somebody else comes in and buys it. Or if there's an adjacent space to your suite um, and you are not quite ready to expand and grow, but you know maybe in a year or two you might be adding some more people to your office and it sure would be convenient to expand into the space next door, well, you should ask for a right of first refusal to lease the adjacent space. So these are just some items uh, to give an example of things that would be omitted from a lease that most tenants would not think to uh, ask for. Okay, so um, being in the time that we are um, and dealing with uh, what's hopefully the end of COVID, but you know, in theory, it could be still just the beginning. Um, how does COVID and unforeseen events like that uh, affect a lease? Um, are those things specifically written in or? So another fantastic, very timely question. Within most commercial leases, there's what's called a force majeure provision. And this is a provision with the lease that I have not even uh, paid a whole lot of attention to myself over the past 10, 15 years because it hasn't come into play. And we always talk about the importance of having a contract, having a lease to govern situations that occur that nobody anticipated or a failure of actions of somebody underneath the terms of the lease. So what we have seen in the era of coronavirus is uh, shelter-in-place orders uh, mandated by governors, uh, mask orders, um, people staying at home due to uh, the risk of the, uh, the pandemic related to the, the coronavirus. And so tenants are put in a situation where they can't utilize the space because they're having to shelter in place. People aren't coming out to restaurants and dining. Therefore, uh, or uh, local city rules, or again, the, the, the governors are coming out and saying, you can't have dining, gyms can't be open. So then all of a sudden you find tenants in situations where they can't pay your rent because they don't have the customers coming in. And in a force majeure provision, would cover situations like this if it addresses it specifically. So in, we talked about the couple of hurricanes that are hitting Florida now. Well, if that force majeure provision covers hurricanes or uh, imminent domain uh, proceedings by, a, uh, by the state or local municipality or things like that, normally we consider act of God, they would be covered as long as they're specifically called out within that provision. But what we have seen in most force majeure provisions in the leases that we have now, pandemics, shelter-in-place orders are not covered. So some tenants have tried to say this has created that force majeure, uh, triggered that force majeure provision, therefore excusing the responsibilities of the lease, which you know obviously is payment of rent. And the legal advice that we're coming back with is, the guidance we're coming back with is, no, it does not apply because it's not specifically addressed. So a lot of tenants are putting in these shelter-in-place orders and these pandemics and within the force majeure provision. Another item that I didn't discuss that is also timely with the George Floyd situation that is going through our country right now is rioting. Um, in some force majeure provisions, uh, you look at like downtown uh, Portland areas where they've had to board up businesses. They can't operate their businesses due to riots. If a riot is specifically mentioned, in the force majeure provision, then it would be covered, which would then excuse the tenant's responsibility to pay rent and perform the terms under the lease. 
So why would a landlord, for instance, um, accept these terms? Uh, obviously, they wouldn't expect something like a COVID-19 or a riot to occur all the time versus in South Florida. We expect hurricanes every year, multiple hurricanes every year. So, I mean, I guess it would be, you know, more logical for somebody to accept a pandemic or a riot clause, because I'm sure those happen far less often than do hurricanes. So why would a landlord put themselves out there, I guess, uh, and be exposed to something like that? So it's a uh, value risk proposition, right? So coming back to if you're a landlord, and you have a lot of empty space and you're dealing with a high credit tenant that's going to bring value to your property and they want to include a coronavirus or pandemic provision, uh, maybe you're okay with that. Uh, but it's all subject to the negotiation. From a landlord's perspective, they want to limit what items would be covered underneath this, this provision. And from a tenant's perspective, you should want to include as many things as you can uh, to protect your business. So it's all subject to negotiation, and at the end of the day, both parties have to find a common ground that, that works for the two of them. Okay, so it, it clearly seems like there's a lot of things that you both need to know to make sure you get into the lease, and even things that might benefit you to not have in the lease. So it would seem that having a professional like a broker who's representing your interests, like you mentioned, somebody else's broker is representing their interests, not yours. So having a broker that represents your best interest would be essential when getting into this, and it would be somewhat foolish uh, to not have is am, am I right by saying that? Yeah, absolutely, and, and it costs you absolutely nothing. Um, the broker is paid for paid for by the landlord, and um, like I said, no different than purchasing a home. Uh, you can work with the owner's representative and represent the owner's interest, pay them the full fee, or you can engage your your own broker who's going to negotiate on your behalf and include these omitted items. And uh, again, it costs you nothing. So I, I highly recommend. All right. Well, that is just about all the time we have. Thank you very much for giving us your top five items to know in commercial leasing. Um, this was great. This is something that definitely is needed for every single business and every landlord needs to understand what they're going up against uh, when getting into this lease. So I really want to thank you for coming in and speaking to us and teaching us about leasing and about having your own representation and everything in between. All right, thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So there you have it. You just heard Jack Hayes' top five leasing essentials. We learned a lot, and hopefully this helped you in your future business and leasing endeavors. Next week, we have an awesome guest coming up. He is a current professional golfer. He's competed in multiple majors and has incredible success. I can't wait to post this. Uh, I'm really excited, and I think you all are going to really enjoy what he has to say. Not going to say who it is, so stick around and find out. And we will see you next time on the green.